Hey guys, real quick before we get into this episode, which I know you're really going to enjoy, I wanted to drop a quick announcement here. At the end of this episode, so after uh, the interview and the outro, I'm going to give you guys an update on some changes in a new direction we're going with the podcast. So listen through all the way to the end at the very uh, tail end of the interview. I'm going to give you that update and let you know what the future of the podcast holds. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. And before I introduce my guest, I just want to say this. I, I started this podcast, and this for you, Doc, will give you an idea of how this all came to be. I did this to start having conversations with Blair doctors about the things they know and the things that I was having conversations offline about and the wisdom that was coming from that. And the interesting thing about this is it's meandered into having a lot of conversations with folks that aren't Blair chiropractors or, or aren't within our little bubble or our community. And I, uh, I really appreciate that because it's bringing different perspectives and ideas at the table and the idea is just to elevate us all as, as you know, doctors and especially chiropractic students pre- preparing to be doctors to just do better and to have more information going in, uh, the information that I was looking for. So um, very excited to have Dr. Heidi Horvick as my guest today. And, and I first came in contact with her, let's say, research or her work in, it was probably 2000. 14 or 15, Dr. Wow. Keith, Dr. Keith Rao, who was a, uh, well, still is faculty instructor at Life University, where I went to chiropractic college, had mentioned the reality check. Uh, so if you haven't picked up the reality check, that was sort of what got me tuned into uh, what Dr. Hovick was doing. And from there, it's kind of, I don't even know how we got, because I think I just sent you a message and said, hey, you want to be on the podcast? So um, we got a lot to talk about today. So I don't want to belabor uh, the intro. But Doc, I, I really appreciate you making the time to share with our community, and I'd love to just get a little bit of background. Tell us how you got interested in chiropractic, uh, became involved with chiropractic, and, and a little bit of a timeline up to where you are right now. Yeah, well, uh, thanks, John. I love having these conversations. I, I really find it interesting. And I was even taught Blair Technique when I went through the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. I think I mentioned that in an email, right? So yeah. I have a lot of respect for upper, upper cervical chiropractors. I think it's it's a cool topic to to to, to discuss. Um, I uh, grew up in Norway, so I'm bilingual. That's uh, kind of key. My mother's a Kiwi, my dad's Norwegian, but I grew up in Norway, came out to New Zealand about 30 years ago for a six-month visit. Mm-hmm. Haven't quite made it back to Norway full-time, and I don't think I ever will now. I uh, went through chiropractic college at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. I was not quite sure what I wanted to be at the time. I was thinking about medicine. I was thinking about psychology. I'd studied philosophy at the University of Os- Oslo before I came out for my six-month visit. So um, <laughs> I was even invited to do a postgraduate uh, degree in philosophy at Auckland University as well. But I ended up going down the physiology route even after I graduated from the New Zealand College. Um, I've always had a very curious mind, John, and I've always wanted to understand. And at that stage, even as a brand new chiropractor, I knew chiropractic care worked. I knew our adjustments made a big difference, but I couldn't understand how. <laughs> and I just was genuinely interested in at the time, I bumped into this professor of mine, Bernadette Murphy. She's a, a neuroscientist, a chiropractor, brilliant, brilliant mind. And I, my, my only ambition was to to do my PhD with her to to basically be a good scientist to help to volunteer and be her research assistant one day a week. That was my entire ambition with the research gig. But then, before I finished my PhD, she up and left and went back to Canada. <laughs> so I would have to sort of give up my the research and and I couldn't at that stage, John, because I was even in my PhD research, we were discovering that our adjustments were making these neural plastic or adapted changes in the way the brain was functioning right from earlier. I knew we'd hit something big. So I, I just couldn't not continue down that gig. And this is when I was offered the job as the research director at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, where I still am today. I'm now the vice president of research and the dean of research. So I spent the last 25 years studying what a subluxation is, how the spine impacts brain and health, and what our adjustments do 
like when we do adjust people, how do they impact the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, the neuroendocrine system? You know, what are these impacts? And I, it, oh, I've just been following the data for about 25 years. Well, it's such an interesting background for a researcher. I feel like physiologists with a philosophy background, that's a, it's like a really interesting, but I think almost like romantic combination of things, right? Like you, you have that, you know, mind that wanders and ponders, you know, but at the same time you follow the data. And I think there's like a really interesting uh, set of skills there. And uh, I'm, I'm also, you know, impressed to hear that you guys are doing meaningful research. You know, I remember being at Life University and anytime we had any interaction with our research department, it was like, so, so uninspiring, right? I was like, we got- When it's so exciting. We had old, so old exciting. guys walking around in high heels going, does this make my lordosis worse? And it's like, who cares, you know? <laughs> and I remember thinking like, God, research is so boring. And, and the thing that mm-hmm. patients and a lot of even field docs don't understand is, you know, we don't have these gigantic, like that's, you know, Life University, that's a sizable, that's a sizable university in chiropractic. And so, you know, to see how scantly resourced and, you know, underperforming for lack of a better word, and it's just from my point of view, the research department is, it's like, there's no one in the profession, you know, who's, who's doing research at a level that I think is, is modern and, um, I don't know, relevant. So I appreciate to hear that you guys down there are, you know, we're thinking about that at the time and are still pursuing that. And it's, it's good. To, it's a, what's the word? I always say putting points on the scoreboard. That's like my thing in, on this podcast, but it's, it's stepping in the right direction. You know, it's elevating. Oh, the, New, the New Zealand College of Chiropractic were always very forward thinking in that regards. I think right from the beginning, right from its inception, they knew that the, for, for real success, it's a three-legged stool. You have to have the science, the philosophy, and the art, and you have to communicate and you have to discuss this. You know, there are brilliant theories out there, but then you have to put them to the test. And if we find that some of the models are slightly wrong, then you've got to tweak the models. You know, it doesn't, you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because D.D. Palmer and B.J. got what, you know, what, what one tiny little detail slightly wrong. <laughs> it doesn't mean they were idiots. It means that they were super bright people well ahead of their time. They just got a couple of things subtly wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know, D.D. talked about dis-ease within the nervous system. Well, that fits. It just wasn't necessarily squashing nerve roots. That's yeah. And instead, it's actually affecting the full full-on brain. So that, the, the model is even more powerful. The contemporary model is even more powerful than some of the original theories were. And that's a point well made because one of the things that gets aggravating to me, and this is just my personality, is like the spirit of these people is to continue oh. on with with the thoughts. You know, these oh, were yeah. not, uh, and even in technique camps, there's kind of this, you know, whether you're Gonstead or Thompson or Blair, whatever, you know, we all have our allegiances to our our heroes right these people that we call quote the greats and the thing that made them great was that they continued you know and so there's this there's this weird thing that happens where we we look up to somebody and we respect their contribution and so then we huddle around it and protect it and that's not what they did you know dr blair was two years into practice when he started researching and as an upper cervical chiropractor who was trained by bj palmer two years into practice, starting to play around with what he was taught. I think, you know, that's a, that's an interesting type of person, you know, and I think yeah. uh, to honor his legacy, we, we kind of do the same thing. Like you said, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's yep. t- tinker a little bit. Let's kind of do our yeah. part to, to carry the torch. So it's, it's interesting when we zoom out and zoom in from a research perspective and, and have all these different, you know, ways of, viewing a vertebral subluxation and, and characterizing yes. it and, you know, uh, philosophizing it and terminizing it, if that's even a word, but. Um, well, BJ was heavily into his research. He was always talking about, we've got to take these theories, but we've got to test them out. I mean, I can't even say that encephalography or blah, 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 thing yep, that yep. he was, was doing and, you know, way back then. I mean, they were so ahead of their time, but it's funny. I'm also thinking here, it's a bit like, the, the fight between homeostasis and neural development, you know, learning and plasticity. Our bodies are always in that in that balance, John, between staying the same, and that's homeostasis, but also developing and, and evolving and becoming better. So it's, yeah. but the problem is we can also evolve and adapt in the wrong way if there's too much stressors on us and then we head towards death, right? So it's it's a beautiful interplay between staying the same and it's the same 
on a human level, on a professional level, you know, yeah, we want, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We want to honor our forefathers, but we can still adapt and move forward in a positive way as opposed to towards death and disease. <laughs> Agreed. And, and I think as a profession that espouses at least sort of in a vitalistic or subluxation centered, yes. you know, or philosophically rooted community, we espouse an inside out philosophy. Yep. So we have to, uh, you know, point that back at ourselves and say, you know, when we're having problems or we're not happy with the way things are going, whatever metric you use, how many people, a percentage of the population utilizing chiropractic care, that, that philosophy. We're not doing looks, that great yet. <laughs> no. And that philosophy looks no. back on us and says, well, the problem's coming from within, you know? And so I think it's a great opportunity to have the conversation. So before we could, we could go on and on, but I do want to give folks an idea of, of, the context for this conversation, you, Doc, when I reached out, you sent me uh, this most recent publication. Uh, it might not be your most recent, but this was accepted in May 2021. So it's just a couple of years old now. Um, wow, it's funny to say that's a couple of years ago. I know. Um, I know. It feels like yesterday, but, and I have published a few more since then, but it was a big review article, uh, John, and I'm uh, very proud of it because it was, we were actually invited by the European Journal of Applied Physiology. So the European Journal of Applied Physiology, nothing to do with chiropractic, but their editorial board reached out to us, basically acknowledged you're the experts in this field. We would like you to write a review. We put back a proposal what we wanted to write about. They said, this is brilliant, but I think you need to split it into two because it's too big. So this is the first half of that proposal. And then we actually submit the, we have to write the article, obviously the whole big review that we yep. submit it. And then there's a rigorous review process. So we have, we were grilled. It took another, you know, six months of, of, of reviews. And then it ends up that piece as it is. The second half is going to be about all the brain changes, just okay. for your information. I know you read it. Yeah. We'll pop the link in the podcast, right? So people can, because it's a freely available article. They can, they can get hold of it and read it themselves too. Yeah. And I, and I will folks for, uh, for the ones that are listening and, and are going to want to get access to this, go back into the, you know, the comments or the show notes of, of the episode and download it. I'll put the link for the full text uh, journal article there, but it's called the contemporary model of vertebral column joint dysfunction and impact of high velocity, low amplitude controlled vertebral thrusts on neuromuscular function. Um, Can we on that note, have a little uh, conversation around terminology? <laughs> yeah, that's I <laughs> before I get into too much trouble. It's it's probably a good place to start because all throughout the paper and even in the abstract here, you guys introduce, um, I, I guess, maybe a new term or one that just seems to suit the the review here, which is a central segmental motor control problem as kind yeah. of the clinical entity being researched through a chiropractic lens. So maybe talk yes. about the development of that and, and where you see that in the uh, chiropractic lexicon. Yeah. So um, I think the easiest thing to, to do is just come with a little analogy. If you were at a barbecue and you were drinking a glass of red wine <clears throat> and a kid came up to you and asked what you were drinking, you might say it's an adult grape juice, right? Because that's all the kid really needs to know. It's not for kids, it's for adults. It's adult grape juice. If a, if a friend of yours came over and said, what are you drinking? You might just turn around and say, I'm, I'm having a red. I'm having a red wine, right? But if a sommelier, a, a wine expert came up to you and said, what are you drinking? You might want to go into some detail if you know it, right? If you're also skilled, you might want to go into it. It's a 1999 Tomotu from Waiheke Island. It's a Cab Sav Merlot Cab Franc blend. It's, a, you know, and, you know and, and more and more detail. So when I talk about the subluxation, Okay, I can I can wear multiple hats, right? I can wear my public communication hat on and I can explain a subluxation. I can talk to chiropractors and again, talk about a subluxation. We, that would be like my mates, right? We know what we mean by the term. <clears throat> but if I'm talking to neurophysiology experts, if I said subluxation, they wouldn't really know what I mean. If I say a central segmental motor control problem, you know, the central nervous system not being able to control a movement, a, a spinal segment, the movement of the spinal segment appropriately, they're with me. Within five minutes, the concept of what a subluxation is, is no problem to them. So I use different language depending on the audience. To me, this wasn't such a big deal because I grew up bilingual. I could speak Norwegian and English, and I would just switch on a dime. And if I was speaking to my dad, it was Norwegian. If I was speaking to my mom, it was English. So the words didn't matter. It was the concepts that matter. So I just want that clear because I can get into trouble whatever language I use. The term central segmental motor control problem, we actually came up with um, even quite early on in our in our research work, because that's from a neuroscience perspective, the, the best way to describe what a subluxation is. 
the central nervous system isn't able to sense what's going on at the subluxated segment, so it can't control the movement pattern appropriately. The interesting thing is this leads to maladaptive brain changes in the way the brain perceives what's going on in the rest of the body and the world around it. And that whole concept of what a central segmental motor control problem leading to maladaptive plastic changes, that to me is what a subluxation is from a neuroscience perspective. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably a very diplomatic and succinct way to kind of introduce that perspective uh, so that before anybody gets, you know, all hot and bothered about, well, we don't get to reinvent the term. It doesn't really, that's not the conversation we're having here. And I'm not reinventing the term. I'm not, because I still use vertebral subluxation as the term. And I'm not saying that the central segmental motor control problem causing maladaptive plastic changes in the way the brain can organize itself and adapt and repair and heal is a replacement or the exact same thing. I'm just saying that currently, according to the neurophysiology, I can defend that brain model of the subluxation that doesn't mean i stop i mean i told you i studied philosophy before i even went to Cairo college i'm fascinated by the way things work and might work and i think deeply about these things and i'm not saying it's the be all and end all but it's what we can currently defend scientifically that, that this is definitely happening there could be a lot of other things that's happening. It could be some dural tension. There can be something with CSF flow. There can be, I'm even finding these little cerebrospinal sensing neurons that line the canal, the central canal of the spinal cord that seem to touch these Reisner fibers when you move that influence how the central nervous system. So like, I'm not stopping. This is just what I currently can defend scientifically. I know that this is definitely part of the subluxation, but and to me, that's why philosophy plays such an important role, because it's the through the philosophical thinking and debates. Like I go to philosophic philosophical conferences just to have discussions with some of these super smart philosophers, because then I'm getting more ideas for what I can go test out in my in my lab. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. And, that, and it's you know, you don't often I think when you're getting reviewed, you know, you're having your literature reviewed, you don't really get the chance to have these conversations and to. And to <laughs> give your point of view and, to, and explain your heart and where you're coming from. And I think that's, you know how this is, like we fight on the internet and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But when we get to have conversations together, the tone changes. And so yeah. uh, I appreciate you being able to just share, you know, in the tone and with it, with the proper, you know, open lines of communication is where you're coming from. Cause you know, it's all out there. No matter what you do, you're going to be criticized as a chiropractor by chiropractors. Uh, yeah. So you, you open yourself up to that, you know, when you push the envelope a little bit. And so I, I appreciate that. Um, I used to get very upset, John. I mean, the amount of tears I cried, but I, I'm learning just that it is what it is. I still have found though, when I'm actually speaking to people, um, I'd say that 90% of us are all in the middle somewhere anyway. And it's just some very loud voices that are very angry for God knows what reasons on both sides. They're both angry with me. So, but, but the bulk of the profession, and that's thousands of thousands of chiropractors I've spoken to over the years, it fits this new model fits really, really well with what they see in practice. And it's actually useful for them. And it's actually making it different, a difference in being able to explain it to, to the public and in the public to wanting to have chiropractic care. So to me, what I'm really wanting to do, my own personal mission is to enlighten the world about the science of the spine. And through that, if more people get under chiropractic care, then I'm going to be a very happy person at the end of my life. Well, and I'll tell you this much, uh, two, two points on that, just from, I guess, if you want to call medical legal perspective, when I was reading this paper and I'm thinking about all the patients I've seen that have had spinal surgeries that have had injections, it's like their, their surgeons don't know this literature that, you know, these people aren't these other people who work on the spine from an orthopedic perspective, aren't aware of these concepts. They can't be because their inventions don't match. And, the and they need part, to, they need to. Yep. And this has to get out there and, and through good quality, high quality science that's been through a rigorous peer review process, which is the definition of science. It's not just an opinion piece I'm putting out in my own journal, because some people do that. And that's almost sad because that's no more than a glorified Facebook post. Right. But if you actually publish real good, solid science in a real rigorous peer review process, which means that the journal is highly ranked and it's got really good, solid peer review process, that's the kind of facts that can get through uh, across professions it can make a big difference to to um like lobbying and governments and you know yeah. all of this kind of stuff it, it really does add value but yeah. it's shitloads of hard work excuse yeah. me and, and i'm already like, getting excited and it's thankless work and and the other thing we've Thank got upper chiropractors, chiropractors in different parts of the world let's say in in canada for sure that are 
really up against you know their own chiropractic boards fighting for the right to take x-rays of patients so that they can you know properly care for them so i know you know, i know these are I the know. kinds of things that you know if you were you know a medical radiology board going well well here this you know this mechanism and this you know this clinical entity that you're working on these problems with patients that you guys are working on x-rays are important for understanding how and where and what needs to well, happen. you can see the stressors on the x-ray which is really fascinating like i mean we know it takes about what four or five years before you'll start to see the djd on the on the on the x-ray well also knowing what's happening to the muscles around that area you know and how that interplays with the way the brain perceives what's going on in the body and the world around it this this all starts to feed together exactly so it's 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 part of the picture and i and i think an important one i think it's real sad when you know, people are trying to stop chiropractors. I mean, and you know why they're doing it, eh? Because if you are a medical doctor and you take x-rays, it leads to more drugs and surgery. And I'm going, okay, so where's the evidence that when a chiropractor takes x-rays, it leads to any problems? Oh, there is none. Oh, right. And for that reason, we should stop chiropractors taking x-rays? I'm like, what the? Oh. Yeah. Well, in, in the trouble- Makes no it, sense. It doesn't make sense. And the trouble with it is it's chiropractors, you know, and they're not even paying attention to what the radiology- organizations are saying about even things like lead shielding and, you know, the, the effects of ionizing radiation. It's like, it's not even a contemporary view of that particular problem, but that's, a it's not, it's, that's it's a, a whole different story. Let's not go there. Story. I know we can talk we've about got, lots of other things. We've got enough to do here. So on this paper of, of, you know, looking at, uh, let's call the CSMC and for folks, let's just call it the subluxation, please. That's what it is. Okay. It is, good deal. I mean, we are studying the subluxation and I'm just using terminology because it's written in a European Journal of Applied Physiology. This is a medical terminology, um, but it is the subluxation that I'm studying. This is the contemporary understanding of the subluxation, just the contemporary under scientific understanding. Understood. Not the full philosophical understanding. Yeah. And, and, and so when she says review, she means review. I mean, this is a well-referenced paper. This is a lot of heavy lifting was done to put this together. There's tables oh, yeah. and tables of references. Um, from... well, what they really wanted to know was how the spine or, or spinal interventions like the high velocity, like the adjustment, right? What Or a manipulation, and we'll get into that in a minute. But it was like, how can spinal function impact motor control? And when we say motor control, that's a neurophysiological term for how the brain perceives what's going on and controls movement. Because motor control isn't just sending movement commands to muscles. Correct. It's sensing what's going on to accurately move that muscle. So there's a lot of sensory motor integration. So they recognize that we were the experts in that area. And this is why we were invited to review the paper. So there are all those tables in there. It's really fascinating how many studies have actually been done looking at a spinal intervention, like a high velocity, low amplitude thrust directed at the spine that were measuring motor movement control or motor control outcomes. So did the muscle get stronger, you know, better movements? And then, then there's a whole lot of them. But yeah, we ended up splitting it. Is that something that's worth um, discussing? Because we ended up splitting, because there were some studies that were actually applying their uh, adjustive thrust towards a dysfunctional segment or a subluxation. And some were just randomly picking a segment. So we, yeah. we're just going to manipulate C3 on everybody. And to me, that's not adjusting a subluxation. And neurophysiologically speaking, we're talking about two different things. So can I explain why I went and made that distinction? I, I think you should, because also it, it does make a distinction, you know, physiologically, what number one, our intended outcome is, and number two, you know, what the measurable impact is, you know, and, and there are, frankly, I mean, there are chiropractors that use a sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, Merrick system, old school, this nerve goes to that organ. So we're going to adjust that spot and hope for the best. And that's really not even, you know, that's, that's not even close to, you know, an accurate representation of, of the full picture. So yeah, explain that delineation because otherwise, I mean, this paper would have been about 400 pages if you guys included the brain research anyway. So yeah, talk about how that distinction was made and, and why you chose to do it in this way. Well, there's some, there's some really interesting research that's been done just recently with uh, not recently. Well, again, over the last sort of 10, 20 years, where I, when I've been doing the work I've been doing, finding that we're changing the brain, um, there's a there's a very, very world-renowned uh, spinal physiologist called Paul Hodges. He he's a physiotherapist, but a neuroscientist, very well reputed in the in the scientific community. And he's done a lot of really interesting research studies looking at what happens to the the, the small paraspinal muscles that cross individual segments. 
um, deep, deep close to the spine. They're the eyes and the spine that I was talking about before. Those little muscles are really important for the brain to know what's going on in the spine. And what happens to those muscles physiologically after you injure the spine is interesting. First and foremost, they might tighten up for a few days and then they start, also almost immediately, they start atrophying. And they start to get fibrotic. There's a lot of fatty infiltration. There's a change in fiber types. And even the muscle spindles themselves get stiffer or duller. So here you're talking about physiological changes around a, a dysfunctional spinal segment. Again, I'm calling it a subluxation. And we also know that, that stress, emotional stress, traumatic events can also switch off these little muscles that are the eyes and the spine, right? So, And we know that local inflammation can do the same. So I don't know whoever might have come up with a with a theory that a subluxation could be caused by trauma, toxins, and thoughts, but you know, it's, it's kind of a smart person because that's literally what we're finding in the research literature, that you can yeah. start this dysfunction in the spine, switching off those little muscles, and as soon as, the, as soon as the brain doesn't know what's going on in the spine, right, then it can't control that spinal segment appropriately, which means that there'll be times that it's moving vertebrae when it shouldn't or the vertebrae aren't stiffening up when they should. And what's happening in those situ situations, now you're getting microtraumas. Right, because now the brain is controlling the movement of that segment abnormally, microtraumas. What causes what happens with microtraumas? Inflammation. And inflammation worsens the scenario. So now you've just got this self-perpetuating central segmental motor control problem. That's that's that self-perpetuating subluxation state. Yep. And then of course, over time, you're gonna get the degeneration happening as well, the DJD around the joint. Now, what do we feel as chiropractors? Well, we probably feel the fibrotic fibers, you know, feel those little stiff ropey muscles around the spine. The movement is a bit abnormal, tender to the touch because of the local inflammation. It's like, duh, this makes sense. This is what happens physiologically. Now, if we know that's happening around a subluxated segment over time, and we are then putting our high velocity low amplitude thrust towards one of those dysfunctional segments. You're putting that thrust into a segment where those little muscles are stiff, atrophied, fibrotic, and full of fatty infiltration, and they've even changed their fiber types. Exactly. That yep. is neurophysiologically going to be different than if you put a high velocity low amplitude thrust into a healthy functioning segment where those small deep muscles are plump, they're not stiff and fibrotic, they don't have fatty infiltration, like physiologically speaking you're putting a thrust into a different physiology yeah. so i had to make the distinction and i think this makes a lot of logical sense as well right because we chiropractors don't just randomly manipulate the spine although you're right these merit charts if i could do anything as i'd have a bonfire with them not really but it's like we don't have that there, there might be a small segmental impact but every subluxation is going to change the brain and the brain is way more powerful than some nerve root but yeah. but that's that yeah but does that make sense like it's if you physiologically because what i didn't want to have happen john was i didn't want to compare apples with oranges i didn't want to compare i didn't want to lump all of the high velocity longitude thrust directed at a spinal segment when some were done at a dysfunctional segment or a subluxation and some were directed at a healthy joint because wasn't it interesting in my two tables of the effects of the adjustment on motor control 50 percent 50% had an effect on motor control, 50% didn't. But in the adjustment that, that where the authors had identified that they targeted some sort of a dysfunctional spinal segment, 78% of the studies found an impact on motor control. So this is where I didn't want to get into comparing apples with oranges. When we do put that adjustment into a subluxated segment or directed at a subluxated segment, you have a greater impact on the way the brain controls movement. And this can be in arms, legs, jaw muscles, you name it, you know, yeah. pelvic floor yeah. muscles. Yeah. Well, and one, of the, one, one of the criticisms was some of these papers don't even describe how and why they chose the segment and, and you know, I what know. the intended outcome was rather than, you know, this is something we can do across, you know, and, and in some of the populations, what was interesting is the results were flipped, right? Like someone that was healthy had a completely opposite reaction of the unhealthy segment physiologically mm. there was almost an inverse mm. relationship between that outcome which is it, it's just really fascinating to think about the, the whole idea of like testing human subjects with a quote sham adjustment all that kind of thing it's it's hard to even you know do that thoughtfully because there's so many you know variables but i want you to and talk do you think about... you could actually put do you think you could put an adjustive thrust into a non-subluxated segment do you think as a chiropractor you'd manage to do that I think that'd be really hard. Yeah. Like, 
because I think so much of what we do is once you've learned it as an art, right? It's an art. It's it. You don't consciously think about it, and I don't think our brains would compute putting the same sort of thrust into an unsubluxated segment because that's not the art. Yeah. Right? Do you know what I mean? I do. I do, and I think it's 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 the primary difference between how chiropractors approach the spine compared to anybody else who works on it, right? Physiotherapists yeah. manipulate the spine. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen athletic trainers working people over on a bench in the gym. Like there's a lot of people who will, you know, move bones, right. And do things yes. to the joints, but that's not the same thing we're talking about. And that, that, no, and I wanted your... to understand that's exactly what I wanted to understand. I wanted to understand when we do what we do, when we, we put that HVLA thrust into a subluxated segment and let the body, you know, recalibrate, reboot, whatever it does. I wanted to know what that effect was, not just randomly manipulating at a segment, which does happen in the literature. But I just didn't think that they were the same thing and I wanted to separate them out. So I called the the thrust at the subluxated segment, I called that the adjustment, and I called the thrust delivered at a random segment a manipulation. And I just separated them for the journal article. And I have a whole table, right, explaining yeah. this article. They identified a dysfunctional segment. This was the words they use. This is yeah. where you can find it in the reference. <laughs> just so it was very clear. It's not what the authors themselves, because they all use the word manipulation, because it's, it's like research only sort of grows one step at a time. And there's very few researchers that use our, our chiropractic language. We've It's taken me 25 years to start to get some of our chiropractic language into the publications themselves but I do and I have always tried to do that because I think it's important it's it's a yep. difference right you yep. and, and we're adjusting no, a subluxated segment and it, it's no wonder why some of these other you know manual therapists let's call them will say well we do manipulation but you can't do it without soft tissue work because it's not as effective or you can't do it without this therapy because it's not as effective and we're going well yeah it's not as effective because of all of these things we're talking about, right? It's not that you this need to specificity adjunct. matters, exactly. you know, specificity yeah. matters. We've even done a study now, John, it's, it's, we're just, just literally sending it off to the journal articles as we speak, um, where we've literally looked at, and this time I use an activator because I, again, I just don't believe a chiropractor can put a thrust into a, a non-subluxated segment the same way. So we use an activator. We've either directed that activator thrust, we just use it as an, as an HVLA thrust. We've either directed it at a subluxated segment or a non-subluxated segment. And we measured the N30 somatosensory rate potential peak. You know, I've done that in about five, published it in about five different um, papers before that that N30 set peak changes significantly after. But they were all manual adjustments and sometimes more than one adjustment, but it was one session, right? And so this time we didn't even know, well, one single um, adjustment with an activator as the HVLA thrust. I didn't know one, would that make a change in the N30? Didn't know. But then we also wanted to try and put that same, exact same thrust into an unsubluxated segment and see, well, neurophysiologically, does that have an effect? Well, fascinatingly, there was still a significant decrease in that N30 when we applied the HVLA activator thrust at a subluxated segment, and there was no change or a slight increase but non-significant increase in the n30 in the when we applied that thrust at a non-subluxated segment so specificity does matter on the neurophysiological consequences and this is what we're just writing about so it's kind of a follow-on from the review article but looking and we also know just on that topic is that that n30 when that N30 changes after adjusting subluxations, we know that that change is happening at the prefrontal cortex. Now, that is an interesting conversation topic. Might need a whole other session on that one, but I'm just saying. Well, well there was a lot of interesting terminology that you chose, you guys chose to use when it when it got to that supraspinal impacts. There was terms like smudging, you know, of the maps and talking about schemas and all these sorts of things. It's interesting to take sort of that uh, that view and say, like, looking at looking at the spine as a functional sensory integrator, right? Because yeah. there's even references to how auditory and visual stimuli aren't integrating the process as effectively when the spine is subluxated. So taking a step back and looking at the maps in the brain of how the body moves, right? And it's, it's control, it's coordination, and it's comfort with those movements yep. and how yep. these adjustments make the difference in a healthy, efficient, and uh, what would be the word? more functional unit, right? You talk about things like yeah. feed forward, you know, anticipatory postural reflexes and all these sorts of things. This is like, as you're living your life, being a person moving your body, you need these mechanisms to engage and to work properly to not only enjoy 
you know, healthy, comfortable movement, but the full expression of your physical body. Can I hire you to write some of my articles for me, please? I don't know. That's a, that's a cutthroat I'm, world. Of I love research. the way I you think, just described this, you know. I think I like standing over the tables a little more. This is uh, this is where the rubber meets the road for me, but oh. I'll wordsmith behind the scenes. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm keen. No, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on. That spine, the way the spine moves, is so vitally important for how your brain interprets sensory inputs from your body and from the world around you. And I mean, this was like mind boggling when we started doing these studies on showing that the way the spine function influenced how the brain processed sound and visual information. I mean, suddenly Harvey Lillard's story makes a bit more sense, right? I'm going, well, that explains that one, you know, and, and, and then. No, we, well, no, was it T6 or was it C2? That's the important conversation, right? <laughs> it isn't, you see, it's the subluxated segment that's important. Yeah. That's what the latest model is showing us that, you know, you're getting at the subluxated segment and by adjusting that with as much specificity as you can, the brain is able to recalibrate or reboot or, and then all the little glitches in the movement programs disappear. But as you also know from practicing, right, it actually impacts the way the person feels, the way they um, stress, the way they relax, the way they integrate other information. Because it's not just proprioception that's changing and sound and visual information. We've even done a study where motor learning, mm. you know, they could, everybody, both groups could learn learn a motor task but only the uh, the people that got adjusted although the healthy spinal group could retain that motor learning 48 hours later so that's mm. telling me that subluxated spines means it's harder for you to learn a movement skill well yeah. what is that that's all the sports that's music that's work that is that's even learning how to be how, be, how to be able to adjust that's a motor skill and for all my friends that, yeah i was gonna say and all my friends that are pediatric chiropractors the ica it's system mates, they're going it's it's all of it cross crawl it's you know it all is of that everything yep. imagine if they can't retain their motor learning because they're subluxated right that's what it's telling me but of course i'm i've got to follow the data and you know i'm saying that that's what it indicates this is what the research indicates and yes we have to follow it up and do those studies as well and we are as fast as we possibly can you know because my biggest role these days our team has grown from me as a part-timer and one more part-timer to now we've got 21 full-time people <laughs> Wow. So, so my biggest role at the moment is fundraising because there's so much research we need to do, John. It's not even funny, and we're we're working with different groups and, and different um, areas. Like we're just raising funds at the moment for muscle testing. Um, do you use muscle testing? It's not just the lineup with upper cervical, right? With muscle testing, you can really get, you know, good ideas of line of drive and all that. So we're literally exploring now with the ICAK group. We're fundraising for. Uh, being able to directly look into the what's changing within the muscle itself when you either therapy localize or as a chiropractor when you challenge so it's it's really interesting because that's what i've built up my expertise in the last 25 years is how the brain controls muscles and and you know so this this to me is just so exciting because i'm an ak practitioner and you know I've, I've, i have huge respect for the upper cervical spine i think that's possibly because it's so they're so chocker full of these stretch receptors the muscle spindles that that upper cervical spine is more impactful than anywhere else but it doesn't mean other adjustments can't impact for an individual either so yeah but we could debate this to the cows come home i'll shut up again no it's it's you know it's a point well made and those of us who are sort of in this upper cervical niche a lot of docs come to it through a personal experience and so yeah. this even helps explain your story better, right? This is, you know, some of what, when we hear folks talk about, well, I had brain fog, I had depression, I was suffering with anxiety, you know, I was not a good student, I was a poor athlete, all these things improved when I got under upper cervical care and I got my subluxated yes. spine adjusted. I mean, yeah. it, it helps fill in the gaps on your own personal story too, which we all like to share with patients if that's where we're coming from. Yeah. And I think that we can now start to tailor that conversation with individual patients with their own symptoms, especially if you start to understand the implications of our checking and adjusting subluxations, changing the prefrontal cortex. Because if you start understanding what the prefrontal cortex actually does, you know, it's it's movement control. It's the pain sensation. It literally activates the parasympathetic nervous system, your relaxation, digestion, reproductive healing system. It inhibits the sympathetic fight and flight response. So the stress nervous system response it inhibits the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal neuroendocrine response it directly inhibits your emotional limbic system so that you're not a tantruming two-year-old so and, and it goes on and on it's vitally important for relaxation and sleep 
through the autonomic nervous system, through the autonomic nervous system, the neuroendocrine system, it's vitally important in immune function. So all of a sudden now, and you know, controlling inflammatory levels, it's like you could almost explain any patient's changes once they got under care, but we still can't predict up front how someone's going to respond because we do not know how someone's subluxations is causing symptoms for them. Yeah. So that therein lies that problem. You know, we can't tell you or predict how you're going to change. I mean, we can predict pretty well that if you've got spinal pain, we will probably be able to help you with that yeah. <laughs> or cervicogenic yeah. headaches. But that's, you know, right down to the core. But then from then on, you know, 70% feel more resilient, relax more, cope better with the health problems, um, 40% sleep better, you know, but this is where, again, I mean, the more data we get, the more interesting this can become as well. And especially we can go out into practices because wouldn't it be cool if we suddenly had like thousands of patients from lots of different chiropractors and we could start to measure from them who's responding best and under what kind of paradigms? How often do we need to be seen? Mm. I suspect most chiropractors aren't seeing their patients enough. I even think we almost need to change the model with, with the way we view chiropractic care, because I think what we're doing is exercising dysfunctional spines back into proper function. And that isn't going to be fixed in two or three visits. Sure. <laughs> That's going to sure. take a bit of repetition and, and ongoing care. And in that case, I'd really I'd like to see chiropractic more like a gym membership so that them and their families can all come in uh, as much as they need to on a yearly basis. Like that to me sounds like the according to the science that makes the most sense. Yeah. Because otherwise it's not yeah. affordable, right? Imagine if you had to go and see the chiropractor three times a week and on a regular basis, which I think a lot of people would benefit from, but this becomes very unaffordable unless it's some sort of a membership yeah. Yeah. subscription type thing. But we'll, anyway, we'll, that's... we'll leave that to the business minds to work out, yeah. you know, exactly how that, you know, uh, scales. Work. Yeah, scales across populations. But I think for a lot of chiropractors who have a big heart for, their communities and for their fellow man in general, which I think is kind of a unique attribute of a lot of, you know, of, of folks that find their way into our, our profession. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it starts to build that bigger picture because any, any person who's running a practice, you know, has a clinic is taking care of patients. You've got all this stuff coming at you and it's so easy to get bogged down in. Yeah. Why is it Mrs. Smith doing better than I think she should? Or, you know, this person's insurance got denied or, but yeah, all this kind of crazy stuff that ends up sort of, I don't know. I, I taking the fire out of your belly sometimes. You know, this is another area we're going into as well with the research we're going because my second in command, Dr. Imran Khan Niazi, is a bioengineer, and he's a real tech guru. And we've got this whole new tech company that's just joined us as well. So mm. it's really interesting because we're working on wearable technology. So yes. like patients in practice can actually take back their own control over their own health. Yeah. And with like these dirt cheap little Fitbit devices and bits and pieces, we can quite accurately pick up on what's going on in their autonomic nervous system with these little devices, with little, you know, sponges that you can wet with water. We can start to, to monitor brain age. Like how old huh. is your brain? Not, not biologically, not how many years old is it, but how, how old is it? You know, how, yeah. what is it? What level is it functioning at? We could start looking at um, endocrine metabolic types of things with little patches on the skin. There's this really, really interesting technology. Imran's also um, New Zealand, one of New Zealand's AI experts. And this mm. is this is getting really fascinating because we're integrating it into the research, especially when we're collecting lots and lots of data from lots and lots of people, which we're starting to do. But my dream is to be recording it from people's practices. And that's where this technology is going because we want it out there because imagine if the upper cervical chiropractors could just document with some objective data how well their care is. We could start to look at who does best with what kind of frequency of care. Exactly. You know, where are we getting the best outcomes? I just, oh, that would be exciting. It would be awesome. And I think, you know, I, I've often joked about this with patients. It's like, I wish you could just wear something that would beep like crazy when you needed to come in. You know, and like, yes. it's a it's a biometric device. It's not how yes. your back feel today. It's like, Man, you're, you know, folks have whoop bands and all stuff, and they're looking at their yep. recovery scores, and I'm going like, that's your autonomic nervous system, and this is like a, is. a a glimpse into it. We need more information, but man, this technology becomes, you know, diagnostic almost for your subluxated. You know, get your tail yep. to the chiropractor. I mean, doesn't get any easier than that. And and then from there, if you've got, you check them in office, you verify, you adjust them, you see the you know see the outcome, and all that data is collected. That would be 
really cool. And, and frankly, a it's kind bit... of literally what we're looking at, John. Like we've had, we get all these bioengineering students come out and do their master's projects with us in New Zealand because you know it's it's a cool lab, it's fun, it's in a beautiful country, so they get to travel and have fun too. And because Imran's such an expert in technology, bioengineering, and AI. Like we had uh, four D Danish bioengineering students just just recently they were here and we had this other French dude that's an awesome guy that's done his PhD with us. So he's done his entire PhD thesis in, in New Zealand. This was funded by NCMIC, by the way. Brilliant, bloody people. Thank you for the support. Um, anyway, so what we were recording in, in Lucien's uh, PhD project, he had he had these high density EMG channels all over the erector spinal muscles on both sides from T12 down to S1, right? So all of the lumbar erector spinal muscles, 400 channels of EMG. And with that, you can sort of decompose and find out lots and lots more data. Anyway, he was doing all these different movements with the spine, flexion, extension, lateral flexion, rotation, all of this. Anyway, so we gave these um, bioengineering students as their master's project an AI study to do, getting all of this high density data just during flexion and just during flexion, look, looking at because the chiropractors that went in, of course, there was an adjustment and, and pre and post. We also documented exactly where in their spines they were subluxated, right? So here you've got this data of the lumbar spine, and then you've got the chiropractor has noted exactly where they were subluxated. Mm. So the, yeah. the the bioengineering students fed this into their program and asked, could the computers tell us if there was a difference, a difference somewhere in the data? And they split it into sort of upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right. Bang on, always found the subluxated quadrant okay. so then they kept splitting okay. it up into smaller and smaller segments almost down to the individual level the computer could pick up on where the chiropractor had said they were subluxated now wow. this is wow. when it gets interesting so there is there is something there you know there's still people in the professional that argue that subluxation should be a historical concept i'm like hello <laughs> there's, there's some solid neuroscience here behind what a subluxation is yeah, it's, it, it's it, unreal. It, it, it is unreal. And I, unreal. I don't understand the benefit of that perspective. You know, like what, how does that move chiropractic forward in any way, you know, to say that like, we're not even going to bother exploring that. We're going to look at neuromuscular pain and we're just going to try to handle that conservatively. And if you don't get better in four visits, then you need a surgical consult. It's like, what, you know, what are we even talking about? So, um, you know, the, the thing with the internet and, you know, just the, the the way that information travels. Yeah. This there's people are gonna demand quality care. And they're gonna yeah, demand, yeah. you know, I know from my research and you got chat GPT, everybody can get on there and start doing all this crazy stuff. Yep. Like they're gonna demand outcome based therapies and interventions, yeah. right? And they're gonna start and technologies like, going that way now too. And that's to me when it gets really exciting. Because then you can basically give the power back to the people. And I know that they're going to benefit from chiropractic care. So it, it, does, it doesn't right. worry me. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand how and why they're going to benefit from chiropractic care. And we're, yeah. we're starting to get some good results on that. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting to discover it. Like I'm in literally at neuroscience conferences having debates with really good neurophysiologists and spinal physiologists about what this means, you know, and well, so what might it mean then that, you know, there's this dysfunction in the muscle spindles? Well, you know, it must mean that it's kind of reducing its ability to detect stretch. Well, that would make it even harder for the brain to control that movement segment. And when you understand the brain schemas and the body maps and all of this, then you're understanding that that spinal dysfunction and subluxation is suddenly influencing the way that person's brain can can integrate sound and visual information or, to, or can learn motor skills or it, and then it starts to get really I st it's just exciting it's such an exciting world I'm a lucky lucky person that gets to do this full time <laughs> well and it's so interesting how you know your story mimics a lot of the folks that I've talked to here from a variety of different backgrounds which is they kind of just started on a path and yeah. ended up just going in a direction that they never anticipated and you know, whether you're a person of faith or you believe in the universe or, you know, universal intelligence or whatever you want to call it. It's like there are times and inflection points in our lives where we just kind of get nudged in a direction of greater service to our fellow man. And I think that's yeah. you have an opportunity at that time to either kind of, you know, go with the nudge or to resist it. And I think if you yeah. let it pass you by, then it will, you know, find someone else who's who's willing and able and uh, I, think, I think the universe will nudge you multiple times. I was nudged a couple of times. <laughs> give you give you a couple. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, but but I also think that it's a real there's a real truth in that, John. That if you if you can. 
go with your strengths, use your gifts um, in, in help of, you know, for, for humanity. So if in, the help, in the help of others, uh, if you can manage to marry those two things up, your greatest gifts and passions in the service of others, you end up with a, a career worth having. You end up with a life that's really meaningful. And I'd highly, highly recommend it. My kids have both gone off in completely different directions to me, but I see their passion and their love and their skills and what they have to do. So all I, I just encourage them <laughs> these completely different pathways because that's exactly what I ended up doing. And that's yeah. where it's been such a fulfilling journey, you know, to be able to to do this. That what we're trying to do with our patients, right? We're trying to to reach, you know, tap them into that untapped potential. And and even they if all you want a genius within, yeah. And if you only want to talk about pain. You know, folks modify their life around pain points, you yeah. know, in, in very profound ways. And they start to think differently about their future and they start to, you know, plan and engage. Uh, and, and well, our understanding of pain has changed. Our, our whole understanding of pain has changed in the last 20 years. Like 20 years ago, we, we didn't realize that the brain learns to be in pain. And loneliness can play a role. Uh, inflammatory levels can play a role. That Your gut health can play a role. Trauma can play a role. Your past experiences influences how you experience pain your future expectations play a role in how you experience pain and this becomes this convoluted maladaptive mess that becomes your reality that is chronic pain whereas physiologically there could be nothing wrong like it we used to think it was a tissue pathology warning system but pain is now known as a danger warning system mm. and that's a very different thing so and you know that was huge change in the last 20 years I, I, even like in the last 20 years the, the understanding of glial cells or the the way the brain works has changed. The way the gut health mm -hmm. influences your brain health and your health is huge change. And emotional trauma, past childhood trauma has a huge impact on brain health and again, overall health. So the, like, if we don't evolve along with science, you know, you're just going to be left way behind. But if you do understand the science, our chiropractic science is like, fits like a hand in a glove with all this latest developments and understanding in how the brain works trauma stress gut health you know pain it's it's incredible there's even scientific medical papers like mayer et al in 2012 were writing about that the change in afferent proprioceptive input that might be due to an injury initially so that disruption or change in the afferent input from the paraspinal tissues plays a vital role in driving both the development of musculoskeletal chronic problems and the reoccurrence of it, the chronicity of it. Well, in my language, that means subluxations are basically causing and both the chronic musculoskeletal problems and their reoccurringness, their, their chronicity. You know, so, and what we should be doing, therefore, is retraining the spine back into proper function, which not only will reverse that, but prevent that from reoccurring and, and developing in the first place. So it's it, it all literally fits hand in hand if you start reading the literature. And that's when you really know you're onto the truth. Because if it wasn't fitting with the rest of science developments, then there would be something wrong, probably yeah. with my yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the, you know, there's a unique, again, we have a unique opportunity in modern day practice where, you know, if you were practicing chiropractic in 1940, you had to wait for BJ to, to send you some sort of brochure in the mail that says, I read this study from this guy in Germany and here's what we did in our clinic and here's how the two, we don't have to wait. We don't have that time delay, right? To get no. that information. And so we are, we all have the opportunity to be at a contemporary level of understanding. And I think with opportunities come responsibilities, you know, and you do yeah. need to take that, you know, this is the place in the history of chiropractic that we operate and own. And yeah. we have sort of a stewardship with that, right? And so, yeah. you know, you're doing your part and each of us clinically needs to do our part to say, okay, here is, you know, the direction the research going. I may or may not reinvent my practice based on, you know, these findings or these conclusions, but I might have different conversations with my patients. I might, you know, inspire them differently to think about health and, and what yes. health is and where it comes from and how it can be maintained or restored. And yeah. people need that. They're not getting it, you know, and it's hot off the last couple of years. 100% agree. 100% agree. We're in a very interesting time where folks are looking for different perspectives about yeah. what do I do to be proactive about my health, right? And, and that's uh, literally why we sp I split up my time now too, John, so that like, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm running the research, actually collecting the data, analyzing the data, but I'm also translating it at the same time. And I'm not just translating it for chiropractors because we have a whole Kairos Academy now where we translate the science 
so into easy to understand so that you don't have to sit there with a dictionary, right? Looking up every second word I use in some of these articles. I get that. So we translate it for you into chiropractic language, but we even translate it down to CA's language or tech language, you know, chiropractic assistant language, so they can start sharing the truth. We've even got a learning hub now as well for patients that are really keen because there are some keen patients that genuinely want to understand, you know, why their spine is so important for their health. So we've got a Kairos Academy, we've got a Kairos Hub where we've got lots of different, all the science is then translated into easy to understand language. It's literally why we've done it because I know science isn't usually written in the understandable, useful language, you know, so I literally split my time up into, oh, and the third thing I do is, well, fourth thing I do is fundraise. The third thing I do is train new scientists to take over because it can't just, it can't just be, yeah. you know, Heidi's work. It's not just Heidi's work. There's a whole team that does this and we need more, a lot more. So if there's yep. other fellow geeks out there that would like a career in research, just just flick me a message. Yeah, you'll you'll have to suffer through it down there in New Zealand. So if you can handle that, I think uh, you know. Oh, your, we can. Your work will be well rewarded. Um, well, let's start to wrap up. I know we kind of we we could go on and on, and maybe we'll talk again here soon. But um, let's kind of summarize. Let, you know, we kind of went on off on a few different rabbit trails there, and I love the the organic nature of the conversation. Let's kind of summarize for folks. You know, with this particular review and this monumental task of putting this review together, yeah. You know, let's kind I of boil, key, yeah. boil it down to a few key points here. Yeah, I think it's really important to realize that the latest science is showing that we're not necessarily relieving pressure off squash nerve roots, unless your patients are coming in with you know radiating arm or leg pain, you know, typical nerve root lesions symptoms, then their subluxated segments aren't necessarily squashing the nerve roots. Okay, I think that's real key. But what we are doing in pretty much, I'd say most subluxations, if not all subluxations, we are, when we're adjusting them, we're enabling the brain to more accurately perceive what's going on inside your body and the world around you. And there's now this growing body of research, like that review article is 250 references. There's a lot of research behind this. We know that there is a whole lot of changes in the spine itself when you get subluxated. And that's also mimicked with a whole lot of changes in the brain. So the way the brain perceives, controls, adapts, repairs, heals, all of that. I think that's really, really key that we get that across. And it's it's true what you said. You don't necessarily change how you check and adjust spines, but the conversation you have should hopefully change, right? Because I think it's really important. Most people don't freaking know that their spine is so important that they should be checking, getting themselves checked and adjusted on a regular basis, that their entire family should. We don't have enough chiropractors to service the people that really need our care. So there's a big shift and it's going to come because, you know, I ain't going to stop doing what I'm doing. This is going to get out there. The public are going to find out. And they started brushing their teeth at one point. They didn't brush their teeth before. Now they know to look after their teeth. There will come a time when everybody knows that they need to look after their spine. They've only got the one. Yeah. It's not that easy to replace, you know. Yep. And when you throw the brain into the mix with that, you know, it becomes even more of a sense of urgency about, you know, protecting and caring for it. So very um, powerful. Good stuff. Well, I, you know, I appreciate you making the time and I know, you know, we're, we're on either ends of the world and we, we made it happen. So I appreciate you being uh, generous with your time, sharing your work with us. Um, like I said, the links for everything that we're talking about here will be in the um, show notes of the article. So you can check out all the resources that she referenced there. Yes. You can get the link to the full text, uh, you know, PDF. And if anybody wants this. to help support the research too, John, I'll give you a link for that as well. Cause we do need it. Research is ridiculously expensive. So if you're yeah. a, chiropractor or a very happy patient that you know you see the value in this being done properly we do need support yep absolutely all hands on deck on that front for sure and um you know we'll we'll definitely keep uh keep in touch and when when this second half of this review comes out um the invited second half of this review uh maybe we'll we'll get back together and break that down and folks will have the big picture you know start to finish yeah. on this whole whole deal in the meantime if you want to kind of wade into this topic pick up the reality check. You know, that book is, yeah. is so approachable for, you know, as a chiropractic student, you know, that was kind of like, you know, falling asleep in, you know, CNS class, trying to make sense of what do all these bits and pieces have to do with anything, right? And that's that's a common thing. I was like, what does this have to do? I just need to learn my technique. Well, now you know, and uh, yes. have been introduced to that concept. So pick up the reality check. It's probably in every, you know, chiropractic college library. 
on, I'm sure on your websites and Amazon or wherever else. Uh, what's the best, where's the best place to get that stuff so that it's... The ebook is probably easiest just at heidihorvik.com. The ebook is there, but if you want the hard copy, then it's Amazon's probably the best. Excellent. I mean, we can you can send it from New Zealand, but it's just shipping is ridiculous. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, good deal. And I'm going to put a bug in here. Maybe in the future, we'll have you at a Blair annual conference as a keynote to, to blow, be the, lovely. blow the top off the place with some of this uh, really exciting topic. I love this stuff. It gets me jazzed up. And I know for a lot of our listeners, it gets them jazzed up too. And for you guys that are listening, if this is what you like, you love these kinds of conversations, let me know. I'm more than happy to uh, you know, continue to bring guests like Dr. Hovick on because it's just fun. And it's, it's things like this that uh, keep us fired up. You know, and I think that's an important thing. Some of us get fired up about philosophy. Some of us get fired up about technique. Some of us get fired up around the the science. And so there's there's ways. I for get all fired of us. up with all three. <laughs> I, I know, and that's the sweet spot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really so, enjoyed this too, John. I mean, you're a fantastic guy to talk to. So I'd be more than happy to do this again. Good. Are there any other uh, words of encouragement or last thoughts or closing remarks you'd like to leave folks with, just kind of as we uh, wind down and send off? Yeah, I think just, you know, follow your heart, your heart, your head, your heart, your gut. When they align, you're on the right track. And especially if you can adapt it to the service of others, that is the sweet spot. And just keep doing what you're good at, you know. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well. All right, guys. Thank you for checking out this episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. I really, really enjoyed chatting with Dr. Heidi and uh, look forward to catching up with her again in the future and following her work. Uh, So if you liked it, let me know what your key takeaways were and expect more content like this in the future. Uh, That being said, I'm not one for cliffhangers, so let's get right into some updates about the future of the podcast. Uh, First and foremost, uh, going through a little bit of a rebranding process. And uh, for the last two or three years, it's been known as the Blair Technique Podcast, and uh, we know that you guys have really enjoyed the content we've put out so far. And the move going forward is going to be with a new look, a new name, uh, a new feel, new sound, and uh, a co-host as well. So what you can expect in the future is to see the podcast coming out as the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. Uh, the tagline is Your Guide to Uncovering Upper Cervical Care. And there's a couple of reasons for that transition. Uh, number one is uh, I've always seen this project as a guidebook. You know, a set of resources to help folks uh, understand what their options are to really own and become acquainted with and familiar with the science, philosophy, art of upper cervical chiropractic, and to bring all the information to a central location for folks to access so that uh, you don't have to struggle through the first few years of practice trying to figure out uh, how it all works like uh, I did. So, um, I thought the Atlas was kind of a nice play on words, Atlas of Chiropractic, considering it's an upper cervical focused platform, but also, you know, an Atlas is a, it's a guidebook, right? It's full of maps and it's full of um, directions for where to go. And that's the way that I view this podcast going forward. Uh, so with that, you'll see new branding, you'll see a new look, uh, some new graphics and ways that uh, it'll basically spread across social media. Um, with that, I mentioned a co-host. Uh, I'm going to have another doc join me to help uh, produce content, to share in the conversations, and it's going to be Dr. Cameron Bearder, who's been a guest on the show a few times already, and uh, he and I have a really good rapport. We go way back to our first upper cervical experiences in school together uh, and have really stayed in close communication through these last uh, six or seven years of practice, so 
it's a natural fit. I think one that allows us to uh, bring the best out of each other and uh, add some more valuable content, but also keep it fun and uh, insightful. So expect to hear from Dr. Beardert soon uh, with a co-host that frees up some time to create more content. So we're going to change the schedule a little bit. And our goal is for there to be an episode every single week, uh, stuff that you guys can uh, consume in different times. You know, So we'll have some more long-form interviews. We'll have some quicker snippets. Uh, we'll have some that are patient-centered that you can share with your communities uh, to educate uh, not just your patients, but prospective patients about what upper cervical has to offer. Uh, and then also with other healthcare providers so that we can start to build bridges beyond upper cervical techniques and upper cervical organizations, but into some of the paraprofessional organizations that support our work and vice versa. Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity to build some bridges there and uh, you know bring some of those interesting conversations to you guys. So a lot to be excited about. Uh, we're starting right away, first week of June here uh, with the next episode. So expect to see a new look, hear a new sound, uh, but expect the same level of content. Uh, and honestly, we're taking it to the next level. So I just want to say thanks for rocking with me for the last couple years on this. And uh, really, it's time to take it up a notch. So excited for what the future holds for the podcast. And I, I welcome your feedback. I want you guys as listeners to let us know what we're doing well, what we could do better, things you'd like to see. And uh, we'll do that. You know, we are the show of the people. So Stay tuned for more episodes of the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast, your guide to uncovering upper cervical care. I'm Dr. John Stenberg with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder. I'll talk to you guys soon.